Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more as well as full transcriptions of each podcast episode at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. This summer, I'm adding a co-host, fellow author Kate Carius Quinn. We'll be doing a series that focuses on hybrid and indie authors. If you're thinking of going the self-pub route, we've got authors who found success with six-figure sales, as well as authors who are just starting out on the road to indie publishing. Learn from them. Learn with us. Uh, we're recording this on June 9th, and we have a super fun guest coming on. Usually, so I host writers and you know, screenwriters, playwriters, like, you know, something in the publishing industry. But today, we have Rob Angel, the creator of Pictionary. Which well, he is a writer, too, now, because he wrote a he book He is a writer, it. too, now, because he has a book coming out all about how Pictionary became a thing. So we're super excited to have Rob Angel coming on to tell us about Pictionary and how it came to be a thing. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Kate, but, you know, I grew up in the 80s, and so Pictionary, like, that's that was a go-to for us. Yeah, I don't, like remember life without Pictionary like that was like one of the staple games that you would have Mm -hmm. yeah it was like like Pictionary Monopoly my family had Trivial Pursuit that was a we were I've always been like a overeducated farmer so (laughs) I was always we were not Trivial Pursuit family we were really into categories I really liked I love categories I played categories. Um, we had a game. Did you have a game called Bargain Hunter? No. Oh my I God. Was, you as a kid, it. I remember we had Don't Break the Ice. That oh, was yeah. like, you know, one of those kitty games that are like. Yeah, good one. Um, and everyone, I remember when we were kids, one of the biggest games was um, Mousetrap. Yeah. Which was like not a fun game to play. It was only fun to build the mousetrap. Like the game itself mm-hmm. was really boring. But then like once mm-hmm. you got the mousetrap together, it was super fun to put you the mousetrap together. We played. I didn't have mousetrap. I didn't have Candyland. We played Monopoly and we played Trivial Pursuit and we played this game called Bargain Hunter, like I said. <laughs> and then there was a game. And it was like from the 50s or the 60s because it was my mom's game when she was a kid. And it was a Barbie board game. And it was all about like you trying to get a date for prom. (laughs) No, it was a date for prom because it was like high school. Yeah. And it was all about like getting, you know, it was set up like a Monopoly board and you would play it and would be like, oh, no, your hairdo is ruined in the rain. Go back five spaces. (laughs) Was it all like sort of like 50s type misogyny? Like you're a woman. Your job is to look beautiful and pop out babies and keep the men's happy. It definitely didn't have babies because it was for teenagers, but it was all like, you know, your manicure is ruined, go home and cry in your bed. You know, like it was, <laughs> but it was a Barbie board game. And it was, I mean, and it was actually kind of fun. And you, I mean, I hate how I'm talking about this. Like I really enjoyed it, but I did. Um, it was like, <laughs> and you know, you wanted Ken, you wanted Ken to be your date to the prom, but sometimes you drew Poindexter. Poindexter was the dork. Oh my God, I found it. Okay, I found it. The Barbie game. It was first made in 1961. Oh my gosh. Okay, hold on. It's called, oh my God. Okay, it's actually called The Barbie Game Queen of the Prom. Oh my gosh. That's so fun. It really should be, though. Like, there's no point, Dexter. Like, when we played Barbies, and we played Barbies a lot. I had four sisters. We had like a bucket of Barbies and um, it would always be like, you know, 20 Barbies and two Ken dolls and they would have to all fight over the Ken. So it should really be like, Ken didn't ask you to prom. You're going with one of your girlfriends and we'll slow dance together. Like there's no mm-hmm. point extra in the Barbie world. 
Oh no, this is, this is fun. It gets worse. Okay. So it's called the Barbie game, queen of the prom, a fun game with real life appeal for girls. Mm -hmm. It says, get a boyfriend, formal dress and be elected as club president. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I do. That does seem like the thing I would have enjoyed as a little girl. Like that would be totally on brand, but now as an adult, I'm sickened by it. I know, but damn, it was a fun game. Oh, <laughs> God. Like, oh, yeah. I'm looking at it now, and I'm like, oh, my God, I remember all of this. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Well, like, I, the I 90s just... also had, like, that shopping mall game, which I think I was a little old for that, but I think my younger sisters had it. Do you remember, like, that shopping mall game with, like, I can't remember. It was, like, a huge 90s thing. It was very much, like, on TV and stuff. Are you sure it wasn't Somebody. Bargain Hunter? Because Bargain Hunter was all about shopping. This was definitely mall. It was very pink. And it was very mall focused. I don't. I definitely don't remember that one. I definitely think somebody will. Do you have like a way for? Um, well, nobody can call in because we're pre-recording this. But I feel like someone needs to like message us. Tell us about the mall game if somebody is listening and knows. If you're if you're listening and you remember the mall game. Tweet at me or at Kate. I'm at Mindy McGinnis, and you are... Kate Carius Quinn. All right, I found another one. Do you remember Mystery Date? Mystery Mall Date Madness. Classic. I found it. You found it? Mall Madness, okay. yeah. I'm throwing more, like, totally sexist and really fun games at you. Um, Mystery, Mystery Date, date. sounds... That's an oldie one, right? Like, that was super, super old. old. 1965. So, you get, like... Oh, my God. I love this game. Okay. So, I, I spent a lot of time at my grandma's house. Okay. So, you put, <laughs> like, cards. There's, like, a door. Like, a pl- little plastic door in the middle of the game. You open it, and it shows you who your date is. And there's, like, you know, it's the equivalent of, of like, Barbie, where there's a Ken, and then there's the Poindexter. Mystery date, the guy that was considered the dud. So there's like a few different guys. So you can get, you can get like the guy that's like the beach dude and he's got his beach packet ready and he's got his flip flops and his, uh, you know, umbrella over his shoulder. And he's like the guy that's a good choice. And then there's the nerd and he's actually got a pocket protector on and he's carrying a school book. And then the dud that's like supposed to be the one you really, really, really don't want to get is wearing, mm-hmm. like, cargos, like, up to his belly button and, like, an open white V-neck shirt, and he just kind of looks like a... I, it's like, this is the guy, and he's wearing work boots. Okay, here's the thing. He's wearing, like, work boots, and he looks kind of dirty, and so it's like, he, this is a manual laborer. <laughs> I feel like It's like the working-class guy, yeah, like... Yeah. They're like, this is a manual laborer. You do not want to date this person. I'm not even going to bother with the segue. We're switching topics. That's enough of that. Um, (laughs) So the other day, I don't think we were recording. I think it was something you typed at me um, and you said, you are going to be so embarrassed when you hear yourself on this podcast because you released (laughs) the first podcast of us co-hosting. Yeah, you said you said I did not edit you because we've talked before about how you'll sometimes edit out. The ums, the ahs, the pauses, the filler, which you call the filler. And I'd asked you, oh, are you going to edit out all my filler? Because I know I have a tendency to make a lot of extra, like, words like that. Like, 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 yeah. Like I am um, a demented Barbie doll from a game from the 50s. You're a Valley girl. For sure. I'm, yes, I am the Buffalo Valley girl. And um, so you said you just didn't like it defeated you. Is that what happened? I didn't even try. I didn't even try because you used. Because you realized it's part of my charm. Well, it wasn't that so much. No. Um, What it was 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 that you use it like almost as an inhale. So. When I'm editing it, I cannot pull them out without clipping the words surrounding him because you just insert it like breathing. 
So I wasn't able to, if for one thing, it would have taken me, I don't even know how many hours to pull all of your likes out. (laughs) But for the second thing, it wouldn't have even sounded right because your cadence would have been messed up. And I was like, number one, it's not worth it. Number two, it won't sound right. Number three, perhaps it's part of your charm. I don't know. That's up to the audience to decide. But part I, of my charm, yes. I think that's really all I just heard of everything you said. Okay, that's fair. Selective <laughs> audio. Um, but then what made it even worse? Because I'm used to you. We talk all the time. I know what you sound mm-hmm. like. I would be surprised mm-hmm. if suddenly you lost filler. I didn't even realize how bad it was until. I pulled up the transcript. <laughs> when another little piece, which is my first book, came out, the local newspaper, the Buffalo News, which is a big deal around here. They're like a like a big newspaper. Um, the woman who does the reviews for the children's books reviews, they always have a little section at the bottom of the Sunday paper with a couple children's books reviews. She reviewed Mm. another little piece and then she called me and she said, would you be willing, you know, to do an interview? Or she, she emailed me and I was like, oh my gosh, of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so she called me on the phone and I was really nervous to the point where I was talking too fast and I was like feeling short of breath. I didn't realize it, but I was also saying like a ton. And so she wrote this article and she put quotes from me in and my quotes made me sound like an idiot (laughs) because, and so it said, you know, it'd be like, Quinn said, Oh, like, you know, the YA market is just amazing. And there are so many readers. It's just like the most cool thing. You know, and I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, God, that is how I sound. And so my mom, they've always gotten the paper. They get it every single day. They're like the people who, if it's not on the front porch, when my dad goes out to get it, he's calling and saying, where's my newspaper? Um, And so my mom said, Katie, there was an article about you in the paper today. And I said, I know, Mom, I did an interview. And she said, your father was so surprised. He he took the paper into the bathroom and suddenly I hear him shouting at me. Huh? He's saying, Katie's in the paper. She's in the paper. And so and then my mom said, but you know, that you, you, you got to, Try when you're talking to not say like so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm looking at the transcript, yeah. the transcript uh-huh. from our first, our first published episode, which came out uh, June 1st. And it was with. Uh, which listeners should know you can read the transcript if you don't have time can, to listen. Read the transcript. Or if, if our you... Midwestern accents are just such a turn off that you would rather read it than listen. It's interesting because I just pulled it up. I pulled up the transcript and I ran like a, you know, a search on it for the word like. And it has mm-hmm. 313 incidences. But they can't be all mine. They're not. Quite a few of them are mine. However, I did find a line here that I wanted to read to you. <laughs> no. Of your own. So here's a line from Kate from the June 1st episode regarding dog menstruation but i would say as recently as 50 years ago like like every if you had a female dog like you just went without like nobody really got their dogs moved or spayed so what you actually said here was as recently as 50 years ago nobody really got their dogs neutered or spayed but you had to just embellish <laughs> You know, it's interesting, though. My sister, <laughs> I, I guess why one of the reasons. Funny? I, you laughed and I laughed with you. And then I was like, wait, I don't understand why that's funny. <laughs> it's funny because it's so bad. So my sister's filler, she does use like. Mm-hmm. As you said, I do believe it's a generational thing to a certain extent. But she actually says, blah, blah, blah. She does. She uses it so often that you notice it. Just like in a regular conversation, she'll be like, so 
So, you know, I cleaned the kitchen and then I was working on something else and blah, blah, blah. And then the phone rang and it was mom. And mom wanted to tell me all about how dad got his finger crushed by the tractor and blah, blah, blah. And then I had to go into town. And of course, they didn't have my prescription ready because blah, blah, blah. And like, she just literally... (laughs) I mean... That's just what she does. She says blah, 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 like all the time. And once you notice it, it is egregious. And and you 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 find yourself, you know how when you're having a conversation with like a British person or someone with an Irish accent, which we have we have David Goffrin coming up, and yes. of course he has an Irish accent. And yeah. sometimes when you're having conversations over a long period of time with someone that has an accent you kind of start like mimicking them a little bit or picking it oh, up or doing it back oh, yeah. on certain words. If you're with uh-huh. my sister for more than 15 minutes, you will start saying blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I'm down South. I start to draw. If there is some slang that everyone around me is using, I, I can't help but pick it up. You know, it's funny. I'm the opposite. I just like really dig my heels in. So oh, I know because you are stubborn as hell. I know. (laughs) So if I end up in like New York City or, you know, Chicago or somewhere like that where people are talking to me about, you know, my books and who I am and where I'm from, I actually kind of lean into my Midwestern a little harder. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. No. I, I have caught myself doing it before. It's like I will be a little more. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I don't know why I do it. I mean, it's not on purpose, but when I'm around... Um, I guess city people, for lack of a better word, I kind of just like lean into it. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> I think you have like, I remember the first time we were in Chicago and you were like, this is a big city. This is kind of freaking me out. Mm-hmm. Like you were like, it's so big. And I just, I don't feel comfortable here. Mm-hmm. Like you were like, it's just too much. So maybe it's like that feeling of like, I don't belong here. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to mm-hmm. show you all. My, I will create a home in my voice. Yeah. Um, yes. I don't know what it is. I've gotten better about cities, though. Um, I mean, that was probably one of my very first times in a major city, like as an adult, mm-hmm. maybe only once yeah. or twice as a child. So I can even enjoy cities now. But yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, I got to be with like you or with. Well, also, you know, things have changed. You can just pull up a Google map and figure out where you are and where you want to be pretty easily. So but like 15 yeah, years ago, call an Uber. exactly like 15 years ago, I wouldn't have had that that feeling of safety and comfortability. Impressed should, by people who travel alone. I travel alone a lot for business, but for like pleasure. Oh, no, no, I would never. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I might. I can't imagine it being a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm not a do things by myself person. Do you go to the movies by yourself? No, no. Yeah, I don't either. But have you ever gone to dinner by yourself? Yes. Like a nice restaurant yes, and sat by yourself? Yeah, all the time. So oh, like really? if I'm, if I, yeah, if I fly into like a con or something and if you guys aren't there yet or if I don't know anybody and I'm hungry, it's like, you no, know, I'll go eat in a in a restaurant by myself and take my laptop. I'm never alone because I have my laptop. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I then guess it I just would. you guys. I'd all be like, hey, Kate, uh, Demetria, I'm sitting here, you know, in this restaurant. You're kind of with me in <laughs> spirit. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I, right. I would rather just go to the hotel and like have pizza brought up or something than to sit by myself. I'll Which is wrong. We are supposed to be a strong woman and go out and not need other people. But I do. I, I go people. out. I don't need other people. And I go down to the, the weight room or the workout room at the hotels and I work out and I do all the oh. things I said I was going to do. That's impressive. No one works out when they're on vacation. I did once, one time, because I was so stressed out. It was when Mm -hmm. I was with you guys, and I was like, my anxiety was flaring horribly, and I couldn't sleep, and so I went to work out. Yeah, I I work out. Um, I really actually have kicked it up since quarantine, because I had to have a schedule. I had to have something. And so when quarantine started, it was like, I'm going to really come down on myself. I'm going to run every morning, and I'm going to lift every night. And so I did. 
And I did it all through quarantine. Now quarantine's been lifted here in Ohio. My gym is open again. And I used to just be gym twice a week. And now it's four, four days a week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Run every morning regardless. And I lift Monday through Thursday, like CrossFit. Wow, that's really impressive. I was starting to lift before the gyms closed. My husband talked me into doing it. Remember me complaining about how heavy the weights were and that they hurt my hands? Yes, and I tried to tell you that you you were using a men's bar instead of a women's bar and that that made a huge difference. Yes, yes. So it's heavier. Yeah. Because my husband was just setting me up and having me do it. But it hurts your hands so much. I Like you were like, oh, you're just going to have to have blisters and stuff. And I was like, yeah, no. you have to form calluses. Yeah, you have to. I, I got calluses. I got weightlifting yeah. calluses. I don't want them, but I was going to push through and I actually, I had a pair of like weightlifting gloves in my Amazon Mm -hmm. cart that I was about to purchase, like right before Mm -hmm. this all happened. And then of course this happened and the gym shut down and our gyms haven't opened up. So, I mean, if the quarantine hadn't happened, like I probably would have been like on the women's bodybuilding circuit by September, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a shame. Like what the opportunities that were lost. Like I always wear my Fitbit, but now I'm actually like paying attention to it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oops, I've been sitting on my ass all day today. See, I run yeah. as soon as I wake up. I get out of bed and I run. You know, it's a new development for me and I really like it because it just forces everything to get going. Well, we better bring Rob on so he can talk to us yes. about Pictionary. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how the idea for Pictionary even happened for you, and then talk a little bit about that process of having it turned into an actual board game that you can purchase in a store. Because I've heard from people that move in those circles that it's a lot like publishing and that it can be very difficult to make that leap into that traditional board game industry. Yeah, it was tough back in 1982 when uh, I was a waiter 23-year-old waiter, and I decided to work on Pictionary. It was my roommate said, hey, you guys want to play this game called Charades on Paper? You know, being 23, of course, let's play a game. Mm-hmm. We stayed up all night, sketchy words to each other, and then the next night, and the next night. And so it just became this late-night activity. And after several nights, I said, you know, this may make a really good board game. And that was kind of the genesis that got me started thinking about it. Then I overthought it. I got inside my head and I started looking at the big picture and I could visualize picture and store shelves, but marketing plans and business plans and financing, it just all became too much for me. I shut down. So I had to pause. I had to stop thinking about it, but it never left my brain. And then one day I see this Trivial Pursuit card and I go, oh, the problem I have was putting words into the game. I see words printed on a card and that's my aha moment. Went in the backyard with a dictionary, pad of paper and a pencil. And I didn't overthink that because everything was right there in my house. The first word I saw that made sense was aardvark. <laughs> now, so that was the first word. That was the first word. That's how it all got started. Because I had taken that first step, the first easiest step, let's be honest. Yeah. And, but the beauty and the, the, the transformation, if you will, was after I wrote that word down, my mindset went from I was a waiter to I was a game inventor. That was the switch. And it was just from writing down the simple word. I, I still didn't have a plan. I still didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't, I couldn't predict the future, but I'd gotten started. And that's where the whole thing in my brain uh, kept going. Cause now I'm a game inventor and game inventors invent games. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because with writing a lot, you know, writers will spend years working on books and not being published and submitting and submitting, and they don't feel like they can call themselves a writer because Mm -hmm. they're not published. But if you are doing it, you can call yourself a writer or you can call yourself, you know, a game inventor because you are, you're doing it and you're taking the steps, even if, um, you know, nobody else has recognized it or it's not in the stores yet. It's absolutely true in anything. It's not just writing or game inventing. If we keep, you know, putting labels on ourselves, then we'll never move forward with anything. To write a book is going to take two years or whatever. To invent a game is going to take eight months, whatever. We'll never get started. So it's just, yeah. a, just a label that we can put on ourselves. And if you're a writer and you've written one word, to me, you're a writer. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. You said that you got too much inside of your own head. You had this idea, you were excited about it. And then when you started actually working with it and you saw the huge scheme of work that was ahead of you, the marketing and the planning and the promotional everything that you have to have in order to even approach the traditional business, it is so intimidating and it's not the reason why you got started. That's what it's like for writing as well. There are so many similarities before I was published. It would be like, I have an idea and it's sharp and shiny and new and everything about it is glittery and it's a unicorn and I'm so excited. And then I start looking at the process of getting published And I'm just like, oh God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through that. Obviously I did. I pushed myself. I made it happen. But it it really kind of does once that that, uh, dirty fingerprint of commerce goes onto your dream, it does transform it. (laughs) Dirty fingerprint of commerce. Well, (laughs) I'm a writer. (laughs) Clearly you're a little scathed. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) We we all have ideas, uh, great ideas. And we're getting out of the shower. We have one. We got to just keep plugging through on them. And as you say, you, you, the, the dirty fingerprint of commerce, whatever it turns into is okay. Mm -hmm. Right. We've got to just plug through. But the other thing is when we know that it's time to turn around and go a different direction. That's okay too. Mm-hmm. So what happened after Aardvark? What was the next step that you took? I assume you got through the dictionary. I got through the dictionary and then I just had to find out if, if the game was any fun. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And, well, my roommates, but yeah. I had to figure out if, you know, drinking beer was the cause of that problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That does skew the results. Yes. <laughs> I, I Writers think. understand that too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, so I just did some play tests and it was fun. And then uh, I know my strong suits and my weaknesses and uh, running a business is not one of my strong suits. Mm-hmm. So I got a business partner who could do that. And I've got a graphic artist partner who could take care of that. And I did marketing and sales. And that was the first really big step after finding out that the product would work or the game itself would work. I still didn't even have a product. And then we had a rather simplistic business model. Uh, It was make games, sell games. (laughs) (laughs) That seems perfect. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm 23 and 24 and I don't know what I'm doing. Everything is intuition. Everything is by instinct. Let's make some games and sell some games. Um, and that this broke was like down. way before Kickstarter. So like, what was your, like now, you know, you would, you know, you've kickstarted and, you know, offer this game, but how did you decide to market it and get it out there and create the games? Like, were you going to like Joanne Fabrics and like cutting cardboard? Oh yeah. It was, <laughs> oh my. The Kickstarter phenomenon, I'm jealous and not jealous at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you can just click and point and create a prototype. We didn't have that option. So I literally went into the phone book, the big yellow thing, mm-hmm. and I knew we needed boxes. So I looked up boxes and then I knew we needed pencils and die and cubes and marker. And I found nine different companies to supply parts and they all were shipped to my apartment. Wow. wow. The phone yeah, I, book. I, I feel like we should like translate this for the younger listeners. Like, yeah, like, wait, but why didn't you just go on the internet and Google it and go on Amazon for those things? Like, yes. And, and so just so everyone is aware, uh, there was a point in time where you got something every year called the phone book and <laughs> it had everybody's phone number in it, which now is just like, People, I mean, it's like an invasion of privacy, right? Because it had your address printed in it too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now yeah. it's like everybody that in your city, instead of being online, was printed and sent to you. Yep. Every, yeah. every business printed and sent to you. Still remember with a friend going through the phone book and prank calling everyone with the last name Wiener. And I really <laughs> apologize to the Wieners of the world. I'm sorry, it was wrong. Oh my God. I remember going through the phone book and finding like our teachers' phone numbers and pranking our teachers. Yes. Oh my gosh, I would never have done that. That's me. Oh, we did. And then I know, <laughs> well, I never told you I was nice. <laughs> 
Well, we were young. I did it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Yes. Yes. How many like prototypes did you create? We did 1,000 games that we put together in my apartment. Holy wow. crap. Yeah. How many, like, how many people were helping you with this? My two partners, a couple of friends, and we literally hand assembled each of those games, that first 1,000 games. I mean, every card, every box, everything oh. had our fingerprints on it. Oh, so wow. how hard is it to get one of those original games? Uh, I are think, they collector's items? I mean, are they I, out I there? So. Yeah, they're out there, but most of them have my signature or they're scrawled up. So I have scrolled away probably about seven or eight of the original thousand out of the 38 million. Wow. I'm looking on eBay right now. I'm going to see if you, can, <laughs> if you can find an original Pictionary. That's got to be a major collector's item because that is such a cool thing. Yeah, like, they're very cool. Make sure you get one. If it has a sticker on the box and the plastic, it's not original. Just you know. Right. Oh. Those are out there. We did that probably in about year four when Win, Lose, or Draw came out. Yes. And they oh. kind of ripped us. Oh, yeah, they ripped us off. Yeah, <laughs> they did. They did. Because it's the same thing. They just have really big markers. Yeah, really, exactly. And so we put a big sticker on the box that said original shreds on paper game. Mm -hmm. Oh, we nice. Were, we were the first, the biggest, and the best. So when you were in your apartment with your friends and you were making these first 1,000, were you like, this is going to be huge? This is going to be amazing? Like, could you feel like this is going to be something? No. <laughs> no. Were you at least telling yourself? Like, whenever I'm writing a book, I'm like, Oprah's going to love this one. Like, I tell myself that even though Oprah has not called yet. Oprah, I'm waiting. She's listening. Yeah, we're here. I'll give her a call for you. Okay, yeah, let her know. I would, I would love if she could just give one of my books a shout out. But, um, you know, I feel like you kind of have to, like, have a little bit of pie-in-the-sky dreams to, like, to assemble 1,000 games by hand. Yeah, we, we assumed and hoped that we would sell a lot, but our minds wouldn't let us go there because we would make decisions based on uh, versus yeah. we've got a thousand games to sell. Mm -hmm. How do we do this? And then if we keep true to our vision and what we're thinking and what we want to do, the money will come, the sales mm -hmm. will come. But our mm -hmm. focus was squarely on those first thousand games. Um, and we put one foot in front of the other instincts drove everything. There was no magic. Hmm. There was no internet. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So how did you sell them? Was it like back of the car, like out at selling out of your trunk or like going store to store and getting them to put a couple on the counter? Uh-huh. I would Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of our biggest tools was demonstrations. So I would stand at the bottom of the escalator, downtown Nordstrom in Seattle, pen and paper in hand, and go, hey, play my game. I mean, I'd stand there for literally. 12 hours a day and I'd sell three games and I'd be excited. Oh, oh my Yeah, gosh. that's, I mean, that's, that's familiar to writers too, because we do, uh, it's called table selling. So you'll be like at a festival or something like that. Uh, but the difference though, is that people are coming to a book festival. The people that are showing up to an event are there because they want to buy books. You're literally just like accosting people in Nordstrom's. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's they were. hard to do. It was, but it was, you know, it was 24 by now, 25, and it was my mission. And yeah. so there was there was plenty of days, I mean, that I wanted to quit. I mean, how many oh, times yeah. you, you've done something and you're you're doing your 14th demonstration or you're, you were doing your 15th book tour or whatever, you're, oh my goodness. But it was just that, that feeling that Pictionary was cool. Pictionary was special. It was just a part of my life. And mm -hmm. so that got me through those days. Hmm. That's, How much did like it sell for? What were you oh, What yeah. were you selling that first edition for? Thirty dollars retail, mm -hmm. and that was when a movie was two dollars and eighty five cents. Wow! Yeah. So that. So were people like saying like, "Oh, this is too pricey"? Like, did you price some customers out, or was that like what was what were other board games going for then? Our competition was Trivial Pursuit. That's what we mm, kind of yeah. in our head. They were selling for 30 bucks, so we decided to sell for 30 bucks. Oh. And we lost $7 a game oh. on those. Oh. 
but yeah. we, really you couldn't because you yeah. couldn't mass produce yeah we couldn't mass produce we had to assume when we produced in quantity that the price would come down but yeah. we knew we had to be competitive we knew what the market was and yeah. so we just priced accordingly and lost seven bucks and crossed our fingers yeah so how did you come up from the beginning it was called pictionary how did you come up with that name at what point did you figure that out when we were playing with my roommates uh, we were using a dictionary to get the words. And one day, one of the roommates started playing this game called Fictionary, which is now Balderdash. Oh, uh -huh. I love that game. Yeah, Laura Robinson's become a good friend of mine. It's a very small community, us inventors. I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, so he just started playing this game. What are you doing? It's called Fictionary. And he kind of, this light bulb goes off. And he said, well, pictures, dictionary, it's called Pictionary. That was it. Wow. That yeah, was pretty quick. One, one, I want to say, I want to make one thing, go back to those games, those thousand games yeah. we're talking about. I equate them to a book in that I touched every one of those pieces to every one of those thousand games. It, it's like a writer. Every mm -hmm. word you put on that paper is yours. You're mm -hmm. invested in every word. And sometimes it's hard to let those go. And sometimes it's, you know, is it the right word? Well, is it the right card? And so there's a lot of parallels in putting that out. Yeah, absolutely. So many parallels. Yeah. And I think also just the, the difficulty, you know, like I think a lot of people, they see the success and they don't, you know, see the day after day of having to go and, you know, put the games together and then having mm -hmm. to sell them. Like that's the part that, you know, in the story of success gets two sentences, but in the living it is really, really difficult. That's that's the quitting point. I couldn't agree more. I mean, people just see Pictionary as, as a success, but they don't see the 16 hours at the bottom of the escalator. They didn't see that I would walk literally down the street with a game under my arm and I'd walk into any storefront. I mean, I didn't know the rules. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't know you couldn't sell to not toy stores and toys are us so i'd go into a real estate company sold them six games i went into a pharmacy knickknack stores department stores i didn't care i was yeah. just, i was just getting people to see pictionary in places they normally wouldn't do it well that's what also i was wondering did you have to have like permission from nordstrom's to be there to be like a vendor oh my yes yeah they the the first sales call to them did not go well <laughs> I mean, I go in and here I am, you know, game under my arm and, hey, I've got this great game you should play. She's going, we sell shoes and handbags and dresses. Right. I go, oh, gosh. So I said, well, Pictionary is fun and your clients will really like, oh, no, Rob, sorry. Well, and by now I'm starting to think this is a big deal. This is a big sale for me, not just numbers, but I need this account. I was offering her everything and anything, including... I would do demonstrations at the bottom of the escalator and sell the games myself. Mm. Mm, that got her attention. And that's what turned the tide. She took 12 games for six stores, 72 games. I mean, I remember the little numbers. They're yeah. Really wow. Very, very important. And that's how that all, all came about. But I was willing to do anything for the sale. I mean, have you ever had that, that feeling where, you know, you just have to accomplish this task. You have to get this goal. Yeah. Done. Yeah, for sure. that was one of those. What was the what was the next big step in the journey? A lot of slogging it out. <laughs> uh, a lot of you know demonstrations, and we'd go to the the restaurants and open up the game and just start playing. What are you doing? Well, we're playing picture. Um, but the next step, we became pretty popular pretty quickly. So this is 1985, and beginning of '86, all the major game companies heard about us, and mm -hmm. we. Basically, we sold 8,600 games and we became too big for ourselves. We couldn't fund our growth. Right. So we had to license. And that means basically somebody takes on the job and the cost of manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and sales. And then they pay us money for that right. We get a deal. We get an appointment with Milton Bradley. Biggest game company in the world. I'm That's huge. Huge. I mean, they own the market. They're like 80% of the market. I'm, tw I'm 26 years old. I'm making Where were their offices? 
they were in Milton Bradley. They were in uh, East Coast in uh, East Long Meadow. Oh, wow. So did yeah. they fly you out there? Did you like oh, go? And... No. No. <laughs> we, my partner flew coach and stayed at a flea bag motel because that's all we could afford. You know, we Man, should, those cheapskates, they should have flown you out there. At this point, I think uh, we needed them more than they needed us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's be honest. And so we finally, we come to a deal. And I'm 26, $500 a month, and I'm driving a 10-year-old car. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so they gave us the deal. Biggest royalty they'd ever given any independent game company ever. Everything we wanted except they wouldn't put in writing that they wouldn't touch the packaging without our written approval. Mm. Our whole vision, which was very, very simple, was based on Pictionary because we knew everything would flow from that. You can't touch Pictionary. Nobody can touch Pictionary but us. They didn't share that vision. Mm -hmm. we, we didn't trust them. I said no to the contract. Wow. I was ready to risk going back to waiting tables and give up on my vision. It was so important that um, what does Simon Sinek calls it, your just cause. You're willing mm -hmm. to sacrifice everything for your vision and I was willing to do that. We had no plan B, my partners and I. And okay, let's be honest. There was a day of what the heck have we done? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Was it a boat? Like, was it a split boat? Or was it you were all in agreement? Because I could see that being like a, a heated argument if um, you weren't all on the same side. You know, it's one of those odd things that we look back that, all three of us felt the same way because as partners, we all had different skill sets. That's okay. You just, you can find those, but we shared the same vision and we shared the same values. Yeah. It wasn't about business. We connected as people, as humans, and mm -hmm. that's what drove the business. That's what drove us always moving forward. And because of that, when that decision came down, we were in complete agreement really i feel like such great you know advice for anyone in any field you know working with others and partnerships and you know i've done co-writing and yeah i think you're right it, it's you have to share that vision and know that you're coming from the same place i know a lot of people that uh want to be published they want to have their you know their words in print and and are willing to kind of take whatever leap is necessary, which is good, but sometimes they're going to go for something smaller than what they're worth. Like they don't recognize their own worth. So they won't necessarily, and I'm not saying everybody should wait until, you know, one of the big four publishers picks you up. If there is something that just sticks in your craw, like you were saying, you're like, no, I really feel like I'm selling my soul if I do this. It's a calculated risk, I guess. Oh, yeah. Every, everything is a calculated risk. You have to take action. And sometimes yeah. it's out of your control. Uh, that if you can't find a publisher or you can't find somebody to license your game, you just have to do it. Otherwise, you'll be stuck. And your product, your game, your, your book, whatever, will be stuck. So at some point, you've just got to jump. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that I tell people a lot, like people, writers, they'll be scared to put themselves out there, scared to put the book out there or get feedback from someone or, you know, even send a round of queries to try to get an agent. And it's like, it, it is scary. If it's worth doing, then it's worth throwing yourself into it. I completely agree. My, my book process was absolutely scary. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just be honest with you. Uh, the blank page. Yeah, I'll <laughs> tried that. It worked pretty well for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you no. start with Aardvark again? Of course. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, you got to write. Start writing somehow, and I <laughs> euphemistically, right? Aardvark, Aardvark is a is a is a state of mind. Yeah. It's not. It's not really writing down that one simple word, but it's a mindset. So you can mm -hmm. control that first step, which I did. And I celebrated that victory 
but I still didn't have a plan. So aardvark is more of an emotional decision to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. So finding your aardvark is taking the first step without knowing what the second, third, and fourth step is going to be, without waiting to have all the pieces in, in, in place before you get going, whether it's a book or a game or a business, whatever. And I, yeah. I really, truly believe this, that we can get ourselves unstuck by taking those little steps. I mean, it's you can say it any way you want. The whole world yeah. is filled with books about finding your aardvark, about taking your first step, taking your small step. But, you know, for me, maybe for people, finding your aardvark will resonate because you've got to do it or it's just an idea rattling around in your head. And don't worry about where it leads. If you do that, for me, that was tough. Yeah. So I just one foot in front of the other until, wow, look what I've got. I've got this game. It's magnificent. So you turned down Milton Bradley and Did you actually have to call them and say like, nah, we're going to pass. For some reason, I'm envisioning Milton Bradley as the actual Monopoly man. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh my goodness. Personal story. This is one of the biggest moments my partners and I remember. I've never, I've never told this story on air anywhere that we go back and forth and they gave us everything we wanted, and we're on one of those old speaker phones. Three of us are there, and we said, you know, guys, we need those guarantees about the packaging. Quiet for a minute. And then all of a sudden, from the other end of the phone, we hear, we're Milton Bradley. You're going to have to trust us. Mm. And my partner says, the only people I trust are the three guys in this room. Click. And we <laughs> hung up. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. That's, that's ballsy. <laughs> that was like, we looked at each other with complete horror and shock, but we knew it was the right decision. But I mean, yeah. it, it was, it was the biggest decision we ever made. Yeah. So, that's huge. Although I have to say, anytime anyone ever says, you're going to have to trust me, it's like, oh, no. No. Like, never say that. <laughs> Did you scream? Did anyone scream? Were you giggling like hysterically or was it just like silence after the hang up? Oh, it was dead silence. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew what to say. We had just maybe screwed ourselves. Yeah. And so it wasn't like we made the right decision. It was like sweat and I'm, I'm hyperventilating. Yeah. It was, it was hard right decision, but hard yeah. to make that decision. Yeah, it was, it was a tough couple of days. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That would be some sleepless nights and definitely a trip to the bar. Oh my mm. God. Yeah. Several. <laughs> I think we ever, not several, one. I didn't think we ever left. <laughs> the beauty was the universe provides and things happen for a reason and how they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Three weeks later, we get a call. There was a joint venture the one to license Pictionary. And it was all the people that could make it all happen. And they gave us all our guarantees and a bigger royalty rate. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So by holding out for what we knew was right for us in the product, we got a better deal. And, and uh, we went from 8,600 games out of my apartment, literally, to 350,000 games when we licensed them, to 3 million games. And by year four, in the U.S. alone, we did 11 million games and three more in Europe. We were the biggest selling game in the world. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. So yeah. by the time you got to 11 million games, how old were you? That's a good question. I think I was about 31 by now. 33. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. You were a little whippersnapper with all that, I, those games and success. Were you like, what do I do now? Um. I was. Uh, fortunately, I had some good mentors that, that helped me navigate success. It's easy to navigate uh, failure because we all plan for it. Plan B means we're planning for failure. But I had to figure out how to plan for my success because I was woefully unprepared. Yeah. I, mean, I went from $500 a month, three years later, I'm a millionaire. I mean, yeah. I no idea what to do. I don't yeah. think I would have been able to handle that at 31, honestly. I would have been, like, so irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, authors will get, you know, a first big deal. And, you know, Mindy and I, were actually um, two days apart in age. 
Mm -hmm. both turned 41 in March and we both um, were in our early 30s when we got our first publishing deal. But, um, you know, we know some like people who were in their early 20s and they got huge deals and, you know, all the attention and stuff. It really, it messed with their heads. And I always said like, I'm glad I wasn't that young because it's, it's hard enough to get through your 20s and, you know, to have all that thrown at you when you're trying to figure out who you are is really difficult. And it's also just hard in publishing. You know, everyone focuses on the first step and getting over that first hurdle. And then Mm -hmm. once you're published, it's like, what do I do next? How do you not just start a career, but sustain it? Yeah. And that's like, no one really talks about that part as much. I think you've nailed it completely is sustain. How do you sustain your career? How do you sustain your lifestyle? How do you sustain long-term what it is you want out of life? What's your vision? Mm -hmm. And that's what sustained me. I mean, have you ever, you know, seen yourself 10, 20 years in the future and all of a sudden a check comes in, well, maybe that's not exactly what I wanted, Mm -hmm. but you got to stick true to that. That's a little, uh, it gets a little difficult to navigate, but you have to stay the course of what, is important to you and what you visualize for yourself. And that helps. You have a book coming (laughs) out now this month called Game Changer, the story of Pictionary. And so what made you decide here, how many years after the creation of the game itself to write like a memoir or this nonfiction about the creation of Pictionary? What was that instigating moment for the book? The original intent, honestly, was to write down what my children's father did, because they only know Mm. the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing the book, just here's what I did so they would appreciate it. Well, that was early on in the process. And then as I started writing, I'm realizing this is a pretty good story. I, I didn't live it until I started writing it down. Oh, I remember this now. I remember this. And I wanted to start sharing that story with people. And that's what kept me going. And it turned into a great book, if you will. Uh, But it's just a really good story. And I wanted to share that inspiration with everybody else. I mean, I was a 23-year-old waiter. Mm -hmm. And I dared at some point to dream to take on the big game companies. And the book is just that journey and the obstacles, uh, you know, good and bad and personal business that I overcame to get there. And Uh, It was just a fascinating process to write this thing. Yeah. I'm looking at the cover right now. I have to ask, is that an aardvark being drawn? Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, aardvark has played a big big role, not just in Pictionary, but my whole life. So I thought I'd pay homage to to the aardvark. That is so cool. That's awesome. And so what do you, have your kids read the book? Are they old enough? Are they? Yeah. Oh yeah. They're 24 and 26. And one of the really benefits, if you will, to writing this. So I I was sharing the story with them as I was writing it. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you're doing something that's resonating, you know, you have that feeling and that gut tells you this visceral reaction that, oh my goodness this is going well, or this is working. So when my daughter was reading the book, I decided to have her help me edit it. She got involved and now she really understands. So my original purpose for the book has been realized. And yeah, so that was, that was a pretty, pretty powerful moment for me. That's really cool. I, uh, Kate, are you going to write a a memoir for your kids about how you have a degree in film and uh, a master's <laughs> in film and then another master's in what are your master's in again creative writing and film film and theater film and theater very useful degrees yes <laughs> <laughs> well they got you where you are now that's right absolutely and my children are actually very impressed that um i am talking to you today because they are huge game lovers especially my oldest son he he, he loves playing games and we do have Pictionary. We've actually been playing a lot of Pictionary with the, um, like kind of a, a, a do-it-yourself version over Zoom because there's that drawing you can draw on the, a board. You can pull up mm. a thing where you can draw on the screen. And so we did that 
um, with my family actually on Easter, which is like five different households. And we had explained to my mom how to play like three times, but then she got <laughs> it. But we all were like, this is Pictionary. No one called it win, lose, or draw. My kids don't even know what that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, right. I appreciate that. When lose, or draw happened, were you just like, what? Hey. Yeah, they came out in 1986, and they launched in 87. And we had already sold 3 million games. Right. Our first reaction, of course, is they ripped us off. But it was really one of the few times I really thought we were going to fail. Yeah. It was this onslaught of this competition, well-funded, half-hour TV show, celebrity power. And mm. I panicked. I was like, we've got to do something. What can we do? And we're going to lose this, this battle of drawing games. Uh, and it was, it was a rough several months while they were uh, on air until the numbers started coming out that we had succeeded in keeping our, our number one position. Mm -hmm. But there was always that moment of, okay, is this going to all crater on me? Yeah. yeah. You, you know, find and that your numbers actually went up. Like I could see someone actually going to the store and being like, oh yeah, I want to play a drawing game. And then being like, oh, Pictionary. I know, right? It was, we didn't realize it at the time, but it turned into a commercial for Pictionary because we yeah. were the and the first. And when people exactly would go to the store, they thought it was Pictionary. So they would just buy Pictionary. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. That pretty, yeah, that was, that was a nice little bonus. Yeah. Win, lose, or draw. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, too, what's interesting to me as an author, because I do see this happen often, you have an idea and you think, oh, my gosh, this is so original. I've never heard of anything like this. My idea is super cool and nobody's ever done this before. And then I'll be browsing in a bookstore and I pick up a book that is basically my book and it just came out and you know someone i don't know and we have never spoken had basically the same idea and it happens quite a bit i have a friend who had written a really good um count of monte cristo retelling gender flipped set in space and it was awesome and about two or three months after i had or no weeks weeks after I had read her first version of this, I see a um, sale in Publishers Weekly, which is where they, they do the weekly sales, the deals that have been made. And it was for a gender flipped version of Count of Monte Cristo. Set in a, and I don't think it's in space, but it was like in a fantasy world. It's, it is interesting how rare those black swan ideas can be. Um, I feel like we're all kind of pulling out of the same creative cloud at some point. I read a great book. It was about human evolution. I have not been reading much. Like, ironically, quarantine has taken away my reading time. Okay, here we go. It's called Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. It's by an Italian woman named Gaia Vince. And there was a quote in there. She was talking about story and the importance of story and the importance of the storyteller and culture and how that's evolved over time. And there was a wonderful quote from, I believe it was like a Greek poet, 500 BC. And he was like, I'm going to stop writing because it's become clear to me that there are no new stories and everything's already been covered. And I'm like, dude, that was like 500 BC. <laughs> People kept going, you know, but it was, it's interesting to me that like even that long ago, one creator was just like, yeah, there's nothing truly new in the world. We're all just telling the same things. We are, but isn't that the beauty of art? Because you could take the same theme a thousand times and mm -hmm. art takes that same thing and does it differently and based on the writer's proclivities or the inventor. So yeah, there, it doesn't matter because if you go with that attitude or that idea, You'll never get started. Right. You'll never do anything. No, I agree completely. The black swan, you can't plan for that. I mean, oh my goodness, we couldn't plan for that for Pictionary or, or uh, Twilight or whatever. But right. Just, yeah, but it's, it's just a matter of going, okay, 
This is my motivation. I'm going to do it and see what happens. You can't. Yeah. I can't. You can't get too caught up in that, which I have, of course. I'm telling you what to do, not what I do. Right. Uh, of course. Yeah. Of course. It's easier to do that. Uh, but yeah, just to throw caution to the wind, see if it resonates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, also, I think the beauty of Pictionary is it's it's one of those ideas that's so simple. You know, you don't have to read three pages of directions to start playing the game. Right. It's it's so it's just so clean and so beautiful and so simple and it works and you didn't, you know, feel the need to make it, you know, add a lot of extra bells and whistles to make it, you know, spinners or whatever. And that's so great, especially, you know, playing games with my kids. We'll, you know, open up a new game and then an hour later we'll try and play it after we've, you know, weighed it through the directions and mm -hmm. figured it out. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like our first business model. Make games, sell games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Words, guess words. Yeah. yeah. We, we wanted to keep it dead simple that anybody could play. But I think the hallmark of why people still play Pictionary isn't the drawing and the guessing. It's that it's an emotion. Yeah. It's like going to a rock concert where some, you know, Mick Jagger's on stage and everybody's in this same vibe, they're still doing the same thing. And when you're sketching and guessing and, and you're having fun and your senses are alive, you remember those shared collaboration, those moments. Mm -hmm. And that's what brings people together and keeps them together going back again and again. You don't remember, hey, I remember this really great trivia pursuit question, but <laughs> people remember the emotion of playing picture and that's why it's resonated so much and for so long. Yeah. I do have to counter, you don't remember those great Trivial Pursuit questions because there is one that my group of college friends, because we played Pictionary, or I'm sorry, we played Trivial Pursuit and Pictionary because uh, we were just like big, big nerds and that's what we did. And so we were playing Trivial Pursuit and it was a game that had been going on like all week as we <laughs> stuck very, you know, soundly to the rules and somebody had all their pies and they had made it to the center and you know we were playing on teams and we were trash talking each other and we were being super difficult and the winning question for in the middle with all your pies was what is the first book of the bible and we were all religion majors those of us that were on the other team were just like, flip the table, we're done. We're just like, <laughs> no! <laughs> so there is there is one memorable Trivial Pursuit question. What's the answer? What's the answer? Genesis. That almost, <laughs> that almost proves the point, though, because it is like the emotion of all of that that made you remember that question. You That's know? exactly like, right. I can see you seeing it so specifically of like the pie, like you're painting that whole picture. Like it's so captured in your mind. Oh, it was, boy, I was pissed. Like probably <laughs> one of the most angriest times that I've ever been in my life. And I have been divorced like <laughs> twice now. So yeah. <laughs> wow. A lot of emotion involved. <laughs> I, I have a good person you can talk to that, you know, release some of this anger. It's okay. <laughs> oh, it gets released. Don't worry. It's all in my books. <laughs> okay, good. Very good. Kate, do you have any last questions? Or Rob, if you have anything you want to add? The, the advice I, I give to people is don't overthink things. Mm -hmm. Everything is a process. Writing is a process. Writing a game is a process. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. I mean, there's books. And if you do this three steps, you'll be successful. I don't think that's true. Right. Just follow your intuition, follow your instincts, and just get going. And, mm -hmm. and I know it sounds simple, but don't overthink that, that step. And I, I kind of liken it to a spider when he's making an, a web. He doesn't sit there and think, you know, I think today I'm going to make a web that looks just like this. Nah, he just kind of jumps. The wind catches him and he lands somewhere. And then he goes back to the spot and he jumps again. And then he builds the web from there. It's all instinct. It's all intuition. He doesn't overthink the process. And so think of, think of their process of building that web, building that spider web. That's, that's the fun part of it. They're not knowing what it's all going to be. And when the spider web is done or your book is done, or your game is done, that's what it's supposed to be. And that's the plan. 
That's great. I see a picture book in your future with a spider. <laughs> or an aardvark. <laughs> or an aardvark. Let me, let me get through the first one, please. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, no, the book, the book's fun. I mean, it was a six-year process. And as you said earlier, I wasn't ready to put it out a year ago, but I'm really proud of it now. And like I said, it just, it just tells the story. And if you love Pictionary, now you're going to know how it all came to be. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I could see it being a great book for people to pick up who are stuck in their houses and are maybe, you know, thinking this is a good time to, you know, make that dream come true for themselves, mm -hmm. something that they've always wanted to do. So um, it seems like it's like really one of those sort of inspirational reads. You could break down all the lessons and things that I overcame, but really what it comes down to, I was a 23 year old waiter. I had an idea. I went for it and it worked out. And so awesome. if, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Writer, writer, pants on fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. <laughs>